Good morning, church. Good morning. Today we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 23. If you have your Bible, you can open and turn there, or if you've got a fake Bible on your phone, you can scroll there. Um, and then when you get there, if you would do me uh, the grace of uh, standing for the reading of the Word. Um, this is something we do at my home church. Uh, we stand up, not out of tradition or out of ceremony, that we certainly could do that. People of God have been standing for God's Word for centuries, uh, but we do it at, at, out of a moment of reverence, to examine that when we hold uh, the Scripture, we are, we are holding the Word of God, and that if we will come to this place humble and ready to receive, God will be faithful to provide to us, to sustain our souls in the moment. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 23 through 27, uh, church with a ready heart, a willing spirit, and ready hands. Would you hear the word of the Lord? And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord, church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word and for the opportunity to be gathered. God, I am so humbled in this season of life to be able to um, be among your people in different places across Southern California. And so, God, I thank you that walking through the doors of infusion is like walking home. Uh, God, thank you for the warmth and the generosity and the hospitality of the people here. Thank you for the faithful leadership of the men and women whom you have called to lead. And I pray, God, now that you would grant me just um, the ability to deliver your word carefully and clearly to those you've gathered in this place. We love you, Father, and we thank you for this time. Through Christ, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So just a couple of quick things about me. As Matt said, uh, I'm a commissioned pastor within the Reformed Church of America. I've had the opportunity to both minister as a an associate pastor and work alongside a great team and also be the lead pastor uh, of a church over the last 10 years. Um, at the end of 2017, I stepped down uh, from pastoral ministry uh, just a, needing a season of um, rest and refocus for my, my family and I. I'm working on my teaching credential. I'm going to move into the field of education. I want to get my hands on some first graders. Uh, and, and watch them uh, begin to learn and, and understand. My, uh, I have three children. I'll put a picture of my family up really quick. Uh, my wife and I, uh, Sherry, and our three children, uh, Noah, uh, right there, the oldest, Nora in the middle, and then Novali on the end. Uh, we're not real creative uh, as parents. We just used all names with the N-O sound so that we could call one sound and have all our kids come running. Um, but enough about me. Today is about Jesus. Amen? Amen. Um, if this is your first time in church or the first time in a long time, I want you to know that we believe two things about you today at Infusion Church. Number one, we believe that you're not here by accident. We believe in a God who is sovereign and providential, who orchestrates and makes things happen. And so if you're here, cause he, it's because he wants you here today. And the second thing we believe about you today is that God desires to meet with you in this place. He's got something to tell you today, specifically through the fellowship of his people, the ordination of leaders, the worshiping of his name, the preaching of the word, and in a few moments, the celebration of the sacrament. God wants to say something to you today. Your job is to be here and listen. Our passage today comes out of the book of Luke. It's one of the four gospels. Um, gospel just means good news. 
When we, t- when we examine a book of the Bible, we need to look at its content and its context. So the content of the book of Luke, uh, similar to the book of Acts, uh, is, is the story of Jesus' life. You guys have been in a series on the book of Acts, studying the churches and seeing what you might learn from them. Well, the same guy who wrote uh, Acts is the same guy who wrote Luke. And his purpose is to investigate, to describe the, the man who claimed to be the Son of God. He's hired by a man named Theophilus to go and investigate and study and kind of do an eyewitness inventory and report of who Jesus was, who he said to be, and is Jesus who he claimed to be. And so he puts pen to parchment to write the gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus's life. That's the content of the book that we're in. The context or the place that we're at is found in Luke 9. And here's what's going on. For some time now, Jesus has been teaching, preaching, performing miracles, and doing his thing out and among the people in the greater Jerusalem metropolitan area. And he looks at his disciples and says, you know, after this time, who do people say that I am? Jesus kind of takes inventory of who and what kind of reputation he has among the people. And so the disciples give a report and they say, well, some think you're like an Old Testament prophet come back from the dead. You're like Elijah returned or or Elijah 2.0, if you will. And others, you know, they think you're a great teacher. And others think you're kind of a crazy man. It is Peter alone who identifies Jesus for who he is. You are the Messiah and the Son of God, says Peter. From there, we move into this section of our text, in which we find ourselves today. The title of my sermon is this, Churches Are Made of Disciples. Churches Are Made of Disciples. And so my big main idea is this. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. And I know that seems pretty basic if you've been a Christian for a while, but honestly, this great and beautiful and wonderful passage has become more important to me in this season of my life, you know, 26 years into my Christianity, 10 years into my pastoral um, career than ever. It's because this truth gets lost so simply in the midst of doing all the things that, that kind of orbit around the church and then also kind of crowd into our life. And so I wanted to spend some time today just talking about what, as you guys are learning from the first century churches in the book of Acts, let's back up a step and say, okay, what is the church made up of? A church is made up of disciples. It's not a building, it's not a place, it's not a location. It's a people called by God to follow Jesus. And so that's my big idea. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Within the context of this passage in Luke 9.23, Jesus is going to lay out the three conditions of discipleship. Or what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Jesus is going to give us three things that it means to be his follower. The first uh, one here, um, must before the conditions, the first one begins with a disciple is one who goes after Jesus. Jesus makes this clear in Luke 9.23 at the beginning. He says, He said to all, if anyone would come after me. So remember, Peter has just identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so Jesus says, okay, if you have any interest in being a part of that, if you have interest in following me and coming after me, so this morning, if you have any curiosity about who Jesus is and what that means to be a part of his family through the expression of the church here at Infusion, if you must first understand that you need to go after Jesus, that where Jesus is going, that's where you're headed in this crazy thing we call the Christian life as disciples of Jesus. From there, Jesus will give his disciples three conditions of discipleship. So here's what it means to to follow Jesus, to be a disciple. These are three conditions of your life that must be met. Uh, The first one, if anyone would come after me, here's the first condition, let him deny himself. 
So the first condition of discipleship is a disciple is one who denies themselves. Now this is a much more radical and far-reaching fundamental change in the very nature of who you are than, cert- than simply a denial of things. Okay? Being a Christian is not like the keto diet. Being a Christian and denying yourself things is not about denying yourself certain things. Being a Christian and being a disciple of Jesus and living a life that denies yourself is not about the music you listen to, the TV or movies you binge watch on Netflix, or the friends you hang out with, or the stuff that you're into. Jesus is not talking about that when he talks about denying yourself. What he's doing is he's calling his disciples to a radical that is a far-reaching and fundamental change in their very nature it is a rejection of a life lived based upon three things. If you are going to deny yourself, you are going to reject the following things. You are going to reject living a life full of self-interest. That is, you are going to live a life that rejects the, the idea that your life is all about you. This is explicitly contrary to the context of our culture today, amen? Consider the advent of social media and our fixation and our fascination with what people think about what we're having for dinner or what people think about what we're doing in this moment. It is an interesting thing in social media. If you study it sociologically, you will learn that though we have the ability through technology to be ever more connected than ever before, the advent of social media is actually producing a higher rate of social anxiety and feelings of isolation than have ever been reported in mental health statistics ever. Because ultimately the life of self-interested all about me does not leave you connected, but leaves you isolated. The second thing you're going to reject if you're going to live a life called to Jesus as a disciple who denies himself is you're going to reject a life that is full of self-fulfillment. That is, you're going to reject the life that is hyperly focused on meeting your own needs and wants. Because let's be honest with one another, shall we? We are usually always very aware of what we personally need and want. Part of it's how we've been designed by God. I know when I need to breathe, I know when I need to eat, and I know when I need to sleep. The problem is our sin nature, it it, it turns ourselves inward to where we reject the needs and wants of others and we become hyper-focused on our own wants and needs. And when you become a disciple of Jesus, those are no longer your primary want, need, and concern in your life. You reject a life lived to fulfill your own needs and wants all the time. You reject a life that lives for number one alone. And then finally, if you're going to be a disciple who lives a life that denies themselves, you're going to live a life, or you're going to reject the life that lives full of self-centeredness. Beyond just a self-interest, where you're going to all about you, beyond just a life of self-fulfillment, where you're always aware of your own needs and wants, the life that is lived that is self-centered lives with little to no concern or care for others. When I'm self-centered, I'm not just about meeting my own needs, that's self-fulfillment. When I'm self-centered, I am willing to meet my own needs at your expense. 
Regardless of the, the damage or the danger it may cause you to have my needs met, I, I give little or no concern to you, and I might even take joy or fulfillment in knowing that my needs were met and yours weren't. A disciple of Jesus rejects this lifestyle and instead, as a disciple, seeks to fulfill the will and the teachings of Jesus. The radical life that is lived in denial of self lives with interest in others above self. Philippians 2 verses 3 through 5 say this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The life of discipleship that denies themselves, that seeks to seek the interest of others before self, is only possible through the work of Jesus Christ. Because consider this, did not Jesus himself put the needs of others before himself? That's what the gospel is, isn't it? It's Jesus seeing the church's need for salvation, seeing the wrath and judgment of God pressed upon us as God's people enslaved to sin under the wrath and judgment of God. And Jesus, seeing that need, comes to earth, cloaks himself in humanity, walks among us, sinful, broken humanity as the perfect and pure, righteous son of God. That would be enough for Jesus to put his, our needs above his own. But what more than seeing our need for justification before God willingly lays down his life in our place for our sins. See, Jesus can call us to deny ourselves because he first has denied himself for our sake. Second part of this is meeting others' needs first. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, says Jesus to his disciples, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, the primary call of Jesus here to love others is first demonstrated by Jesus toward us. Has Jesus, again, not met our needs before meeting his own rooted in his love for us? And so if we're going to live a life that denies self-interest, denies self-fulfillment, denies self-centeredness, if we're going to live a life that is interested in others before myself, that is interested in meeting the other's needs first before my own, it must be because we live a not a self-centered, but a Christ-centered life. Colossians 1 reminds us that Jesus is at the center of the universe. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whereas thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. That is in first place centerpiece of our life is Jesus Christ if we are going to live as disciples. You see, the problem with living a self-centered life is you've put yourself in the place of Jesus. And as disciples, we are committed to removing ourselves from our own little tiny throne and acknowledging that Jesus, acknowledging that Jesus sits on the throne of the universe and is worthy and trustworthy of that kind of leadership in our life. 
The first condition of discipleship is that we deny ourselves. The second condition Jesus lays out for us in Luke 9, 23b is a disciple is one who takes up their cross daily. If you know uh, your history, particularly your New Testament history, you know that the crucifix or the cross uh, was an instrument of governmental execution and death for the Romans. It would be similar if Jesus had said, a disciple is one who takes up their electric chair today, or takes up their lethal injection. The Roman crucifix was the means by which unwanted people were put to death. And honestly, it was particularly awful. It involved a suspending an individual in midair, joints through the wrist and through the ankles, nailed into wood, suspended with their arms above their lungs so that they would be just at the point of suffocation, but have just enough freedom of movement to push themselves up off their pierced joints so that they might catch a breath until they would get to the point of exhaustion and then hang there, suffocating. What the heck, Jesus? To be a disciple, I have to take up my cross daily. What is Jesus calling me here? See, we have to hear this in context. We have to hear this in first century Jerusalem before Jesus had made the cross a symbol of our hope that we put in our stained glass windows in the back of our room for prayer. At this point, Jesus is telling his disciples to take up an instrument of death if they, and they have to do this every day if they truly want to follow the Messiah or the Savior. The f- way of life is through death. Jesus, yes, welcome to the upside down kingdom that is the church. And so what is Jesus calling us to here as disciples? I think there are two ways that we as disciples today can take up our cross and that we will somehow understand it in context. To take up our cross is to put the old nature to death. It is to put the old self to death, and that's what it requires. If you're going to live a life of denial of self, you're going to have to put the old you to death, and the means by which you do that is through the cross of Christ. Practically, if the cross was an instrument of suffocation for death, I might suggest or submit to you today, in theory, that the way to put sin to death in your life is the same means by suffocating it. By removing its source of life, oxygen, whatever that might be. Whatever sin you're struggling with, if you have been a Christian and you are continuing to wrestle with that thing that you pray and you ask God to take away from you, let me ask you if you've tried suffocating it out of your life. Or is there a moment or an area where you are providing it the means to live? For if you're going to be a disciple today and follow Jesus, if you have a desire to chase after him, knowing who he is, it requires that you might suffocate that which is killing you. Galatians 2.20 gives us hope in this. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, says the Apostle Paul. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We take up our cross daily when we refuse to submit to our old nature and our old selfishness and our old self-ambition and our old self-fulfillment and our old self-centeredness. We deny ourselves. 
and we put sin to death in our life. The second way I think we take up our cross daily as believers, as practically as disciples, is that we take up the cross as the symbol of us willing to suffer and bear the name of Jesus. What Jesus is saying here is that when we take the name of Christian, when we openly identify ourselves with Christ, we must be ready not only to bear the normal suffering that that life brings, but also to share in the particular sufferings of Christ. That to bear the name of Jesus, I am willing to suffer my reputation. That to bear the name of Jesus, I'm willing to suffer my safety and my comfort and my security here presently because I know that my eternal safety and security and home is forever. Is guarded and locked in by Jesus. This is serious stuff when we talk about discipleship. As Matt said, you cannot play church and be a disciple. You can't. Because the requirements, the conditions are too great. Look, look, look around. Who are you willing to suffer alongside? Is it this group of people? For the sake of the mission of God, in Escondido... I've got unsaved family members who live in this city. I need you guys to be a gospel outpost because I've got family who lives here who doesn't know Jesus. Despite their nephew and grandson being a, a Christian and a pastor, the, 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 the closest thing we get is they ask me to pray over Thanksgiving dinner. So I break out those really long pastoral prayers. You know the kind Matt uses. But I need this to be a missional outpost because I've got unsaved family members in this city. Are you willing to suffer for the name of Jesus for the sake of those who don't know him yet in the city of Escondido? Are you willing to put your self-centeredness, self-fulfillment, are you willing to put yourself aside and take up the cross of Christ and suffer and be uncomfortable for Jesus' name in this place with these people alongside you? final condition of discipleship that Jesus lays out for his disciples here in Luke 9.23c is this. A disciple who's one who follows Jesus. After denying yourself, after taking up your cross, that is putting the old nature to death, being willing to suffer for the name of Jesus, will you be one who follows Jesus? In contrast to the other verbs Jesus that uh, it's used here that, that Luke records. This one is a present imperative. Here's what that means. It means that there is a continual following of Jesus in the present. This wasn't going to be just a one-time thing that Jesus said, like, hey, follow me over to the store, and then you can go your separate way. No, no. This was a continual following of Jesus that would happen for the course of their life. You guys have been reading and studying in the book of Acts. You know that the disciples have followed this and what it would cost them. You know that the, this little group of people called by God in this place for this season would explode into a gospel movement that would spread out across Asia Minor. Acts is an interesting book. It's wild. It starts in Jerusalem with thousands of people in a single place, and then by the end of it, you're following one guy in a bunch of places who sees thousands of people saved. That's the beauty of the church as we go out on mission. That the gospel just continues to grow because people continuing 
to follow Jesus. There's an old Jewish saying. It's this. It says, uh, may the dust of your rabbi be upon you. During Jesus' time in the first century, uh, rabbis were traveling itinerant teachers, which means they would travel from city to city, place to place, from synagogue to synagogue. That would think of like uh, little house churches. And they would travel and they would teach and they would bring their students with them. And the order of importance or the order of excellence among the students was determined by the proximity they were to the rabbi. So the rabbi would lead the, 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 the walking journey and then right behind him would be his students. And so there was a prayer that Jewish mothers would pray over their uh, sons as they went to follow their rabbi. It was, may the dust of your rabbi's feet be upon you. That is, may you be so close to your master and teacher that as he walks, that you are so closely following him, that the dust from his feet would be caked upon you when you arrive in the new city. Church, may we be people who are caked in the dust of Jesus' feet because we're following so close. That we don't have to guess what Jesus is doing or where he's going because we're with him where he is and we're with him doing what he's doing. That might be my prayer for you as disciples of Jesus in this place. May the dust of Jesus' feet be upon you because you're following so closely this morning. Because wherever Jesus is, that's where you want to be. Because you will take up this call and condition of discipleship to follow Jesus. Now, contrary to uh, the recent hairstyles and beard trends, uh, Jesus is not here with us physically. So how do we follow Jesus practically as disciples of Jesus? I'll give you three super practical ways. Number one, having a daily relationship with Jesus or following Jesus involves Bible reading and studying. Pastor Vinny, did you drive all the way to Escondido to tell this group of people to read their Bibles? Absolutely. Why? Because we don't. Because we fall into the trap of busy. Because Netflix produces a new show every other week and we've got to catch all 12 episodes. Because we let other things creep in. The voice of our master and teacher has been given to us. And we will not be effective disciples. We will not be people who follow him unless we know him. Following Jesus involves Bible reading and studying. I'll differentiate those because you can read your Bible for pleasure and joy. Please do that. Please do that. Take time to spend times in the practical wisdom of Proverbs. Take time across the emotional spectrum of humanity in the Psalms. Take time to read the exciting story of the church in the book of Acts. Take time to read the pastoral uh, letters of comfort and calling to Timothy in the New Testament. Take time to read the Old Testament history and the fatherhood and sovereignty of God across the national paradigm. Take time to read those things for pleasure and enjoyment. But you can also study your Bible, which is different than just Bible reading. Studying your Bible requires that you begin to read for understanding, not just for enjoyment and pleasure. Those discipleship groups, those DNA groups, that gospel centrality groups that you, you heard Matt and the others talk about this morning, that's the place where you're going to help you understand what it means to study your Bible. The crowded houses, those are con contexts where you can understand what it means to take the Bible, to observe what it says, to interpret what it means, and then to apply it to my life today so that I might live it out effectively and obediently as Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be someone who reads and studies their Bible. Number two, 
you've got to be a person of prayer. Too often in our prayer life, we treat God like a slot machine. We put all prayer in, we pull our handle, and we expect reward. The prayer of a disciple is more about listening than it is speaking. It is more about being in relationship with God by listening than it is to be speaking. I don't know what that looks like practically for you in your life, but where is that quiet moment where you address God for who he is as your heavenly father, you speak to Jesus as your loving savior, and then you just wait and allow him to minister to you in quiet. But embracing that aspect of prayer is something that a daily relationship, one who follows Jesus, requires. And then finally, to be a follower of Jesus, you must read your Bible and study it. You must pray, but you also must worship. More than the 90 minutes we spend together on a Sunday morning, you must live a life of internal devotion where you acknowledge God in your daily life. That's what worship is. It's acknowledging God in your daily life so that every decision you make, you see as a worship decision. Everything from the words that come out of your mouth to the food that you put inside it becomes a worship decision. Who or what are you worshiping? Is it self or is it Jesus? If you truly want to examine how self-centered your life is, pay attention to the decisions you make throughout your day. And are they others-oriented? Are they Jesus-oriented? Or are they self-oriented? I will repent to you publicly uh, right now. I blew this yesterday. I blew this yesterday with my wife and my kids. Simply blew it. I lost my temper with my daughter. I was trying to watch uh, the end of a baseball game, and my seven-year-old daughter ran in. It's Saturday. She's been at school all week. I've been working all week, and so I haven't had a whole lot of time to connect. And she was looking to connect, and in that moment, I was more concerned with who was going to hit a ball out of a field than what my daughter wanted. And so I snapped at her, told her to be quiet, and crushed that little girl and sent her to her her room crying because dad wasn't ready to listen. You know who was being worshipped in that moment? I was. My comfort, my desires became first and primary. And I missed it. Who or what are you living for? Who or what are you worshipping? In order to be a disciple today, there are two things you must believe and one thing you must do. Number one, you must believe God's word when it says that you cannot help yourself spiritually. That you are a sinner and that you are among perfect, imperfect sinners in this place that Jesus has come to save. Secondly, you must believe that Jesus is able to do what you cannot do. That you cannot save yourself, but that he can save you. That he is the great physician who has come for the sick and the suffering. And that you, like the church, are not perfect, but we worship the one who is in Jesus. That he died for you to remove your sin. That he rose from the dead so that you might know that God is satisfied with what he has done on your behalf. You must believe those two things. And then third, you must commit yourself to him. That's the thing you must do. The Bible speaks of it in different ways. But in each case, it's clear that it involves an act of our will. It says that we are to believe in Jesus, 
which means that we're to place ourselves in his hands. Before I pray, I'll leave you with these questions. Number one, who is Jesus? That's the context for this passage. Who is Jesus? And I would submit to you that today, if you have not answered that question, that will be the question of your life. Who is Jesus? More than where you will work or where you will retire or who you will marry or what you will grow up to do or where you will live, who is Jesus will be the ultimate question of your life. Secondly, what is your life currently orbiting around? What's the center of your universe? Is it Jesus? I hope and pray it is. Three, what do you need to ask God to put to death in your old nature that you're still wrestling with? What needs to be put to death through the cross? Four, am I ready, willing to suffer for the name of Jesus? And five, am I a disciple of Jesus? I pray and hope that you are this morning. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you.